This podcast is brought to you by the law firm of Clyde Snow and Sessions, based in Salt Lake City with offices in Oregon and California. For over 65 years, Clyde Snow has represented clients throughout the West. Clyde Snow, serious about solutions. Hello, and welcome to Ripple Effect, a podcast putting water into context. I'm Emily Lewis, your host, and I'm a water attorney here in Salt Lake City, Utah, practicing creative solutions to today's and tomorrow's water problems. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, and welcome to Ripple Effect. After taking a little bit of a holiday break there in December, we are very excited for 2023. We have got a great lineup of amazing guests and lots of really fun conversations to be had in the upcoming year. So I'm very excited about what we have coming here in the next several months. And I thought to start us off, we should talk about a pretty interesting program that we have going on that's rather timely called the System Conservation Pilot Program on the Colorado. And I have with me today, Lily Bosworth, who is the staff engineer for the Colorado River Authority of Utah, to give us some specifics about this program, because it is a big piece of some of our Colorado River management and recent activities and something that those who are interested in, if they want to participate, it's got a little bit of a time frame on it. So Lily, before we move into the Colorado River Authority of Utah and the SCPP, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of how you came to your position? Sure. So I'm actually relatively new to this position. I started in early October 2022, so I'm just a few months in. Before that, I grew up in Ogden, Utah. So Utah's home for me. My family's here. I went to the University of Utah for undergrad and studied honors geological engineering and environmental geoscience. In undergrad, I did research on beaver dam analogs and how they impact the hydrology of streams. And so that was kind of an introduction to water resources management and how that intersects with science and policy. From there, I went to Colorado School of Mines in Golden, Colorado for a master's in hydrologic science and engineering. And instead of the water resources focus, I did more of a water quality focus looking at engineered wetlands and water treatment with engineered wetlands. And right out of graduation, I got this job, which I am really thrilled to have. So that's about as much as I can say about my career so far. All right. Newly minted and excited. (laughs) You're not yet jaded. It's perfect. (laughs) Awesome. I have to tell you, I love beaver dam analogs, and mm-hmm. I have several friends of us who have a very, very long-standing joke about about these projects. It's very funny. Nice. So, nice. it's amazing. They're actually pretty amazing. Yeah. Okay, great. So, kind of recently minted engineer from University of Utah and Colorado School of Mines. Kind of a history in water quality. Now we're kind of moving into water resources with the Colorado River Authority of Utah. This is a relatively new organization, and I've been meaning to have a podcast on it, and we have yet to have one. So this might be kind of a a novel entity to a lot of our listeners. Could you just take a couple minutes and explain what the Colorado River Authority of Utah is and what its mission is? Yeah. The Colorado River Authority of Utah was started in summer 2021, and it was formed to respond to basically the crisis or the upcoming crisis on the Colorado River. We have had several years of drought. Our reservoir levels are low and we need a statewide coordinated effort to make sure that we are 
resilient as a state in terms of drought on the river. So that is background as to why the authority was formed. We are a state agency, but we're relatively small and kind of more agile than the usual mm -hmm. state agency. So there's two staff engineers, a few admin staff, and our executive director, Amy Haas. And so we are a small team, but we, we kind of have a large reach. We work with a lot of consultants to do larger scale projects. And then we have several collaborators from Water Conservancy districts throughout the Colorado River Basin in Utah to the Utah Geological Survey and organizations like OpenET that are nonprofit and kind of providing large scale science about water resources. So we're trying to synthesize as many different players on the river as possible. Right. And don't you also have a board or a, an yes. advisory board? Yeah. <laughs> yes. So we have a, a board specific to our organization that has representatives from around Utah and kind of spread throughout the Colorado River Basin in Utah. And then along with our board, we have three advisory councils that are based on sub-regions within the state. So kind of a Southern, Central, and Northern Advisory Council. And those councils are basically volunteers who may represent a nonprofit, just private interests, or interested citizens who want to give input to the authority, but don't necessarily sit on the board. That's a formal way for them to engage with our agency. Awesome. And then can you talk a little bit about how you engage with the Upper Colorado River Commission? Because yes. there's lots of acronyms, there are lots of entities on the Colorado, and I think kind of unpacking that nesting doll is pretty helpful. Yes. So the Upper Colorado River Commission is the four upper basin states on the Colorado River, Utah, Wyoming, New Mexico, and Colorado. And we kind of, as the four upper basin states, try to work together as much as possible to coordinate our water resources and our decisions on the river, because that just tends to be the most effective means to meet obligations for the lower basin states in terms of supplying them with Colorado River water. And it's a good way to, you know, be democratic as well. And so the Colorado River Authority works closely with the Upper Colorado River Commission. Our board chair is also the state river commissioner for Utah and sits on the board of the Upper Colorado River Commission. So Gene Shawcroft for Utah wears a couple different hats. And so he can kind of be a good bridge between the authority and the Upper Colorado River Commission. Yeah, Gene wears a lot of hats. Yes. <laughs> I don't know how much that man must have amazing time management skills because he yeah. he has lots and lots of responsibilities. Yep. Okay. Honestly, Lily, that was a great little introduction to both the Colorado River Authority of Utah as well as kind of how you interact with the Upper Colorado River Commission. Because I, you know, it's I, one thing I've noticed in the last couple of years is because of the crisis in the Colorado, the public eye has been much more interested in Colorado River mm -hmm. issues than in the past. And so part of that process is just kind of like unpacking those different pieces. So you did a great job. Thanks. So kind of what I wanted to talk specifically about today, and we can talk more about the, you know, we'll probably have a whole nother episode just on the authority itself and kind of its role and what it thinks and, and kind of how it functions. Yeah. But 
there is a very specific program that I want to chat about, which is the System Conservation Pilot Program. And so for our listeners, could you give a little history of kind of what that program is? And then maybe let's talk about what it means for 2023. Yeah. So there has already been a system conservation pilot program. It ran from 2015 through 2018. And the Upper Colorado River Commission ran that program. And so it was the four upper basin states and Utah was a participant. So that iteration of the program It was the first of its kind, and so they were trying to just see how much interest they could generate and trying to reach a diverse group of people. So they reached out to municipalities, people in industry, and then people in agriculture. And agriculture was the, the biggest player, for sure, because they used the most water in Utah, but M and I also participated. And so the, the program is tailored to anyone that wants to conserve water. So that's that's a little bit of background. A lot of the projects in Utah specifically for that 2015 to 2018 program were some combination of fallowing agricultural fields and maybe changing a crop or doing a split season kind of following. It depended on the person and what their water rights did and didn't allow. Okay. And before we go into those, just like one quick kind of like recap on that. So the the purpose of the SCPP was to basically gauge interest in water users who may be interested in foregoing their water use to basically create more water in Lake Powell, right? Is that kind of like a sum of of what the goal was, is to knowing in 2015, 2016, 2017, that there potentially may be a shortfall in the Colorado River. It it was a program to kind of gauge interest in conservation. Right. And a kind of catchphrase that we use to describe SCPP is temporary, voluntary, and compensated. So any conservation measures are totally voluntary. This is not the state coming in and telling people what to do. And they're temporary. So if you have a water right, you won't be subject to long-term conservation that might threaten that water right. And then it's compensated. And so people are paid for the amount of water that they conserve. And so how did that work out in in the first round of SCPP? You just kind of started to get into some of the Utah projects, but kind of what, what did that look like on the ground to participate in the initial stage of this project? Basically, I mean... People would apply, they'd submit a proposal to the Upper Colorado River Commission, and some proposals were accepted, some got hung up in the contracting process, depending on what people could and couldn't agree to, as happens. And then people, for however many years their proposal was, didn't use the water that they said that they wouldn't use in their proposal. So a lot of people followed Like I mentioned, some people, let's see if I can find examples of projects in Utah. I have those pulled up. Mm -hmm. Partial season following, split season deficit irrigation. So, you know, people got to choose whatever worked best for their operations. And that is definitely one strength of this program is that the people that apply get to take whatever approach is best for them for conservation. 
So, you know, we're not trying to say everyone needs to just follow their land, but if they want to take a more creative approach, this is a way to support that or give them an opportunity to try something that they haven't tried before. And in the initial stage two, you've got voluntary, incredibly important. You know, we Mm -hmm. want people who want to be doing this. You've got temporary. So this is a a short-term lease of water so that there's no issues of forfeiture or anything like that. And then compensated is the third one. Could you talk a little bit about how in the past the compensation worked for participation? Yeah. So in the first iteration of the program, people proposed as part of their application a price per acre foot of water. So that varied depending on the applicant and where they were located and how much they felt like they would be losing if they didn't grow a certain crop. and it was kind of a loose process. There was no real science to that price point. And what we know is that the median price point in 2018 was about $150 an acre foot, which is pretty low. What I've heard kind of talking to people since then, feedback on that particular price is that they, even in 2018, felt like that was in many cases too low for their operations. It, it might work for some, but putting putting a price on, on water is isn't definitely a challenge. Yes, we yeah, we it, it is the challenge. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. We actually have a really good episode on water right appraisals mm-hmm. that we did a, a couple months ago that kind of gets into some of the nitty-gritty on that. Yeah, cuz I think one thing that's important to understand is that for a producer, it's not just your lost crops for that year from not producing, but it's the cost to put your field back into production. Right. It's all the costs of acre insurance. Like it, it's a, you know, you have to make sure your per acre value is going to end up on the on the black side, not the red side, for you to participate. And that's a lot of different costs. Yeah, yeah, there are a lot of moving parts there, and people also in the ag community discuss concerns with impacting the broader economic system. So people that maybe move their product from their field to the market and those kind of economies as well. And and they have some concern with with that as well when they follow. Kind of the ripple effect, so to say. Yep. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Okay. So 2015 through 2018 was the original system conservation pilot program. It was uh, run through the Upper Colorado River Commission. Interested participants submitted an application where they proposed an acre foot value. They could choose what kind of project they wanted to do. And then we ended up with about $150 per acre foot as the lease price. Correct. Okay. And do you know how many people ended up participating back in that period of time? Like how many projects or kind of the scope and scale of participation? Yeah. So in total, there were 30 applications received over all of those years. Just in Utah? No, across all the upper basin states. And 19 projects were actually implemented. Okay. Two thirds. All right. Yep. I actually think that's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. For for an initial program, it's it's not bad. I don't have the number of acre feet conserved, but it was roughly around between 40 and 50,000 acre feet. Oh, that is more than I actually would have thought. Okay. So 40,000, yeah, 40 to 50,000 acre feet. Okay. Yeah. Over four years. Over four years. Okay. Yeah. Now, I think one thing to, to think about this project though, these did not require change applications though, right? It was just a federal right. program to kind of express interest. So there was no shepherding component in the original SEPP, right? 
Yeah, that's a critical point to the program in the past as well as the 2023 program is that a change application is not required in most cases. Okay. So this is going to be really this was the initial the initial purpose was just to see hey what's out there what is the possibility and it seems like I think 40 to 50,000 acre feet over a four year period of an initial program pretty successful. Yeah. So 2018 is now five years ago, which is crazy yes. to say out loud. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Why are we talking about SCPP now in 2023? Can you kind of give us an update of how this has now re-entered the conversation and kind of what the recent activities are about this project? So SCPP is one response out of a five-point plan within the Upper Colorado River Commission to conserve water because the Colorado River and particularly Lakes Powell and Mead are so low due to drought. So we are rerunning the program with a few tweaks and a few lessons learned. And we're hoping eventually that this is a stepping stone towards demand management or water shepherding, like you mentioned. But because that usually requires a change application, it's much more complicated. And so SCPP, at least for 2023, is easy to get going on a short time frame. And we need that because we have so little water. Yeah. And we do have a couple episodes with uh, Jason Robeson, Professor Robeson, talking mm -hmm. kind of about the status of the Colorado for any listeners who are interested, kind mm -hmm. of where we are right now in terms of our, our pretty extensive droughts. I think at this lowest, it was 23% and 24% in Powell and Mead, like under a quarter, just under a quarter. I don't know if you know the statistics, but... It's right around there. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty low. <laughs> Not sufficient to maintain long-term water deliveries. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so we're in this crisis. And so as part of the five-point plan for the Upper Colorado River Commission, there's been a decision made to kind of reinvigorate and kind of reinstate the SCPP at some scale. Right. So what does the 2023 program look like compared to the 2018 program? So there's a couple of differences. One is that the funding is coming from one source. The previous program had kind of a mix of sources. In this case, the funding is coming from the Federal Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. And then Bureau of Reclamation got a portion of that funding and allotted a smaller portion to the Upper Colorado River Commission. So there's a single pool of money. We know how much it is for this program. Mm -hmm. And how much and is that? It is $125 million. Okay. And... So then we had to reauthorize the SCPP program. So at the federal level, the fiscal year 2023 omnibus appropriations bill, which was just passed uh, December 22nd or 23rd, mm -hmm. reauthorized SCPP. And then the Upper Colorado River Commission board reauthorized the program. And so now we have funding, we have policies in place, and so we can implement the program. And I would say, a, one of the biggest differences is that pricing per acre foot structure. So in this year's iteration, we have two choices that water users can take. They can take a fixed firm price of $150 an acre foot, which we kind of touched on that for many people won't be realistic. 
or they can opt to propose a different price and justify why they think they deserve that price for their water. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that might make the contracting process more labor intensive. It will make the contracting process more labor intensive. And so they kind of have to, you know, weigh their options and decide what works best for them. But that's a, a critical difference. And so in terms of, you know, why a water user might feel justified in applying for a higher acre foot value, what are some of the considerations you think that the commission is going to weigh in terms of, of what would justify a higher acre foot value? Right. So like you mentioned, there are costs associated with not just following, but then restarting a field. And so if a water user wants to say, okay, it's going to cost me, you know, I would get this much from, say, a alfalfa field in this year, and then it's also going to cost me this much to get that field started the following year or restarted, then they can say, okay, this is kind of my total cost that I would be losing if I didn't use my water in 2023. And so they can just look at their specific operations and kind of add up their expenses that they lose or save to come up with their own number. There are also some, there is some water competition. I don't know if that's the best word for it with other entities leasing or buying water rights. And so those are pushing the price up in certain areas in the state as well. And so people might say that, you know, in that area, the water market is different. And so that could be a justification for a higher price. But in terms of the details on that, I'm definitely, we're we're all kind of learning as we go and we'll Mm -hmm. see what proposals look like. So kind of you could either have like actual costs to participate and then and then also kind of like local market conditions as some of the some of the considerations. Yep. And then and I'd also see, too, I mean, like not like you said, this is new. So we're all going to kind of see what kind of RFPs roll in. But I would also probably assume like location of the water, you know, ability to potentially prove shepherding might be one, too. So you could actually prove that that water is going to get there. I mean, if I were an applicant, those are kind of some of the things that I'd be thinking about, too, is like my water is immediately on the Green River. So I know that it will get there or X, right. Y, and Z. So. Right. Yeah. yeah. So if if you're part of maybe a canal company and they are going to charge a fee for you to change how your water is delivered, that sort of thing could mm-hmm. factor in as well. Okay, great. So we've discussed that the pricing is a little bit different in the sense that it's the fixed fee or the justified cost. What else is different between the 2015-2018 program and the 2023 program? One other big difference that comes to mind and is kind of exciting from a scientist perspective are the verification methods that are out there for actually saying, hey, this is what my consumptive use of water was before, and this is what it is during my participation in the program, which should, you know, be much less than before. And so in the past, especially in Utah, most people applied and estimated their consumptive use of water with the Blaney-Criddle method, which is kind of a plug and chug equation for estimating water that leaves the system through evaporation and transpiration. 
and it's based on alfalfa, I think, and flood irrigation. Mm -hmm. And so it definitely has a lot of assumptions that wouldn't apply to everyone. And so it's not the most accurate. Mm -hmm. And so now one option that is being discussed, and we definitely haven't finalized how we're going to incorporate it, but we have open ET or EE metric data that's available to us in the upper Colorado River Basin. And so that is satellite-based data where they run a satellite over the whole surface of, of the upper Colorado River Commission and can estimate evapotranspiration with that imagery. The details of that are, are definitely kind of Developing. above my head. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But it's pretty cutting edge. It's pretty cutting edge. Yeah, it's very cool. <laughs> yeah. But they can use that as a way to estimate consumptive use in fields. Huh. It's, you know, the science is still developing. It's not perfect. They are still working on considering precipitation and removing that, as well as dealing with sub-irrigation or groundwater and soil moisture that's pre-existing that the crops might use. And so it's not perfect, but it's definitely a, a component or an option for this year's program that we're excited to start to see how it goes as, you know, kind of another piece of the pilot. Okay, so just a quick recap. So an element is what you're leasing is you're really using the consumptive portion of a water right, not the water right yes. that's diverted, but what would have otherwise been consumed by the crops. Correct. And so you can either use the Blaney Criddle, which is just like, it's just basically like a, a percentage on your diversion rate. So if I had a, right. you know, like a duty value of four acre feet, and it was a 50% consumptive, I'd have two acre feet. So you can use that method or you can justify uh, maybe a different method to get you a more water leased or a higher consumptive value that is now in the natural system by using open ET or metric. Right. Cool. Yes. I believe people can also just use their irrigation metering if they have a metered system or their diversion flow data. And so we haven't settled on specifics there for verification, but you know, ideally from a science perspective, a combination of those would be great, but there are lots of options. So you're basically marching from a theoretical consumptive value to an actual consumptive value. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Very exciting. And then isn't the contracting a little bit different this time than before too? Like how people actually apply, is that a little bit different than it was before? Uh, because I wasn't involved in the first round, I can't, compare that specific detail very well. I think it'll actually be pretty similar okay. where mm -hmm. proposals will be contracted and approved by all four upper division states, the Upper Colorado River Commission, will be approved by Bureau of Reclamation, and of course the project proponent or the applicant. Okay. That's probably true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I guess another I guess the question I have instead is like if you wanted to participate, how would you participate in this project? Right. So you would submit an application. If you're in Utah, you would submit it to both the Upper Colorado River Commission and the Colorado River Authority of Utah, which is the representative for UCRC in our state. And so that will go to me. You can find my email on our website. And we as the Upper Colorado River Commission and then kind of an authority representative will review all of the applications with the Upper Basin states. And from there, we will contract with 
people that agree to a contract after they have applied and feel like it's still going to be a good option. And basically, they will implement the terms of the contract, which means they will reduce their consumptive use. And then we will verify throughout the growing season that they are reducing that use. So if you're a Utah producer who wants to participate, will Mm -hmm. the authority take a kind of like a first round call and say, hey, we got 20 applicants, but we think these 11 have the most higher potential. And will they move that up the line to the Upper Colorado River Commission or all 20 go to the Upper Colorado River Commission and and we'll look at them in gross? I believe all 20 will go to the Upper Colorado River Commission and we'll make a decision kind of as a group. Okay. And then, so, you know, if you have a project and you, and you submit it, when would you have to submit that by? Yes. Applications are due February 1st, which is oh my goodness. There. <laughs> coming right up. Okay. Yep. <laughs> February yeah. 1st for those who are interested in participating. And that's because we are in a critical period right now, right? Like the, the right. time is of the essence. Okay. Right. And, you know, we want contracts to be finalized before people would actually be using their water. And so we're on the timeline of the seasons too. Okay. And then how long is the participation period for those whose applications are chosen and then actually moved to being contracted with? Yeah. Right now we're targeting just the 2023 growing season. Okay. So really just one year. If applicants want to propose more than that, they can propose I believe it's just two years that this program was reauthorized for at the federal level. And so it's pretty short term, Mm -hmm. but the hope is that we'll in the next year come up with additional or different programs to continue to provide water users with options for conservation. Yeah. Cause this is just kind of, this is one specific tool that's sponsored by the federal government. But here in the state of Utah, we've got a number of water marketing tools. We've got existing right. existing lease programs. We've got our Water Banking Act. We've got the new Great Salt Lake Trust, which is obviously right. not Colorado-based. But it's kind of fun to see all these projects start up and see where, you know, how they do things differently, what they're doing the same. Like, I think it's yeah. a pretty exciting time to work, work in water on this aspect for sure. Yes, we are. We are learning on the fly. Yeah. So do you guys have any kind of goals for how many people you want to participate or how many acre feet you want to try and run through this program in 2023? Or are you kind of just seeing what's out there kind of back at that interest level? Right now, we are still at the interest level. We don't have any specific goals because we do recognize that the timeline is so short for this program to get off the ground that goal setting didn't feel super realistic. So we're just trying to gain interest and raise awareness and build relationships as we start to think about long-term programs. Okay. And my understanding is, as part of that relationship building, you guys have a fair amount of educational outreach that's going to happen in the near future for this program. What, what do you guys have in terms of going out to the water users and talking to them directly? Yeah, we have three information sessions coming up in January, really this week and next week. So coming right up. The first is this Friday, January 6th from 1 to 2 p.m. And you can register for that to get a Zoom link on the Colorado River Authority of Utah website. You should see that right on our homepage. Mm -hmm. The second information session is in-person in Price. 
That is Tuesday, January 10th from 4 to 6 p.m. at the Utah Division of Wildlife Resources Building, the Southeastern Region Office. So the address there, if you want it, is 319 North Carbonville Road, Price, Utah. Okay. And then one more information session also next week is in person in Roosevelt on Thursday, January 12th from 4 to 6 p.m. That one is at the Utah State University Roosevelt campus in the multi-purpose room at 987 East Lagoon Street in Roosevelt. So those are open to anyone that wants to come and ask questions, get some FaceTime with me and Amy. I believe that folks from Division of Water Rights will be at the meeting in Price. And one other thing that I want to mention with those is that if you're interested in applying for the program, but you want some support, some people opt to work with an agent, which is usually someone from a nonprofit who has helped applicants before to write their application and do some of the technical work. And so I know that one person, Jordan Nielsen from Trout Unlimited, who has served as an agent in the past, will be at those meetings if you wanted to make that connection. All right. he, will, he will be around. He's excited to help people conserve water. So Jordan is a CPD man. <laughs> awesome. This is great. So we've got a, a quick deadline of February 1 coming up, but lots of opportunities to either see you in person, in Price, or in Roosevelt. We've got a virtual meeting this Friday, January 6th. I think this podcast is going to come out on the 5th, so we'll be right in yeah. time for that. And then they can always contact you, Lily Bosworth, at the authority as well if they've got questions. Right. Okay. So lots of opportunities to learn and hopefully participate. Being, I, I love being new at things. It's, I love a beginner's eye because it just opens you up to just being open. Yes. What are you most excited about learning in the next couple of weeks? I think listening to people's ideas on how they might conserve will be cool. And finding solutions that are really tailored to individuals' needs and operational needs. I have had one conversation with a water user in the Uinta Basin who just gave me a phone call and said, hey, you know, I'm thinking about making some changes to my operations. And this seems like a great opportunity for me to make those changes and, you know, not grow things this year, but still make a little bit of money from my water. Mm -hmm. And so it'll be nice to see how people kind of take the program and make it their own. And I think as a newbie, also just actually meeting people face to face and seeing some of the land will be really nice. Yeah. I think this is a great opportunity for some trial balloons. Yeah. Yeah. Dipping your toe in. Yep. Well, Lily, this has been awesome and succinct and you've done a fantastic job. Um, (laughs) Is there anything else that we didn't get a chance to talk about or you'd want everyone to know about before we conclude? I don't think so. I think we were pretty thorough. Yeah, we hit all the the major points. Yeah, Yeah, you did a great job. That's awesome. Thank you. Okay. Well, Lily, I would love to set up another one of these, maybe as we get further along in the process, like maybe after mm-hmm. we've chosen our projects and kind of mm, yeah. you know, seeing see what's going to be happening the next year. Cause you know, markets and leasing are going to always be a part of Utah and, and the Colorado River 
basin in general, but I really think that we're at a peak point of like learning. And so I'd love to share what you guys are learning, what you're hearing. I, I'm really interested in the open ET and metric. And if anybody does a project using open ET, I'd be really curious, but see how that goes. Cause I think there's just tons of potential there. So yeah. 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 That would be great. Cool. Okay. Well, we'll be in touch and thank you so much for your time. Yeah. Thank you. Nothing said in this podcast should be taken as providing legal advice or as establishing an attorney-client relationship with you or anyone else. This podcast was produced by Andrew Humphreys. Find Ripple Effect on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Thank you for listening.